Okay, I want to elaborate a little bit more before we come into the what's called the donut economics to elaborate a little bit more on the scheme of the inversion of values. And this is where I think a Buddhist perspective comes in to help in the analysis of this. Because when we see or investigate like what underlies this distortion of values that takes place, I see that underlying it is a certain premises that invade the human mind and determine our thinking. And these premises involve, in quotation marks, we'll call it a metaphysic, or there's a word ontology, which means the philosophy of being, of existence. It involves a particular epistemology, a way of understanding the world, and it involves a particular again in quotation marks, ethic. And then there comes the unfolding or the application of this program. So in this program, we begin with the ontology or the metaphysic, which is a sort of you know, unarticulated, almost unconscious premise or presupposition that each of us is an individual atomic being, that we each have a kind of nucleus, solid nucleus of intrinsic existence, self-existence, which is different from and disconnected from everything else in the world. So we each have the sort of inner substance of being, our own individual, personal identity, which is immutable, unchangeable, and that standpoint from which we look out at the world. So that is like the idea of the atta in Buddhist terminology, the self. And then once we have that unrecognized, tacit presupposition of the self as our basic standpoint, then comes the epistemology, the mode of understanding So we understand everything as being, or we perceive everything as being in some way potentially the possession of the self. So the self, the notion of self, has this formidable drive to continually expand its boundaries, the boundaries of possession, in order to inflate its sense of reality. And the sense of reality, of course, we understand as Buddhists, is a fiction or a delusion. But that sense of self seems to be so solid that we continually have to try to confirm it by acquiring more material possessions. And it seems to me that the material possessions are even playing a secondary role to the acquisition of power, power over others, power over nature, over the environment. So that is the epistemology, the way of knowing, the way of understanding. And that leads to, I say in quotation marks, the ethic. The ethic is that as individual, inalienable, substantial selves, our task in life is to acquire as much as we can. 
So we are considered within the dominant system of economics. Each individual seeks to enhance their own individual well-being as rational agents. We're supposed to make choices that are going to increase our economic power, our financial resources, and to do so even when it comes at the expense of others, at the diminishment of the being of others. But sort of this is supposition here, which comes, from, I guess, from Adam Smith in that period, that when each of us is acting as calculating individual rational agents seeking to enhance our own material well-being, somehow through the workings of the invisible hand of the market, it's going to bring about the greatest good of everybody. Though we know, you know from concrete experience that that is not the case, but it remains at least articulated by those who are the proponents of this kind of economic system, that that is the underlying ideology. They call it the trickle-down economics or the benevolent hand of the market. But in fact, what happens is that more and more wealth and power becomes concentrated in fewer hands. And we could see the pathology behind this in the way what seems to me to be the case is that one in one's mind, when you're subscribing to this way of thinking, one becomes addicted to an inner conceptual world which has no real relationship to the actual concrete world in which we're living. That sounds very abstract, but let me illustrate this. We have somebody who has holdings of wealth let's say, $3 billion. And yet, with $3 billion, you can do virtually anything one wants. One could fly anywhere for vacations. One can own five homes in different continents. One can enjoy the best food, the best entertainment, anything kind of material enjoyment one wants, one can enjoy. But... For those with three billion dollars, not enough. One needs five billion, ten billion. And so I imagine, I don't want to mention any names, but I can imagine some of these people sitting there with even with five billion dollars in their bank account, not satisfied, but scheming and conniving all day long how they can their corporations or enterprises can take over this enterprise in order to boost their income, their holdings from five billion to ten billion. But between five billion and ten billion, you know, there's not much more you can do <laughs> with that six billion, seventh billion, eighth, ninth, tenth billion. But it's the abstract numbers of how much one has compared to how much other people have that becomes the driving force, the ineradicable compulsion to keep on increasing one's holdings, one's wealth, one's income. So it's a kind of the workings of tanha or craving backed with the kind of ignorance that when I gain this much wealth, then I'll be satisfied. But there comes no satisfaction. And the result of this we could see in the way the human economy that's emerged over the last century or so is just creating so much human misery and inflicting so much pain and harm 
damage, almost irreparable damage on the planet. So what is the solution in concrete terms? And I was looking around somehow on the internet. One of the wonders of our technology, (laughs) you get exposed to resources I were never expected to come across. Somehow, I don't know how I came across it, but just a few weeks ago I came across something called Donut Economics. It's an economic vision developed by a young woman economist in Great Britain. Her name is Kate Raworth, R-A-W-O-R-T-H. And she had studied economics, I think at the London School of Economics. Then she didn't want to go immediately into academia, so she went working in various countries around the world on development projects. She became, uh, she worked for Oxford International for a number of years. Then she became an economist. I think she's at Cambridge or Oxford now. And she developed in her economic reflections, she was very concerned with the well-being of both the planet and the people on the planet. And she was reflecting on the model of economics that is taught the diagrams of economics that are taught in the standard economic textbooks, which is like a mechanical system. On the one hand, there is the production, which results in commodities on one side. On the other side, there is the consumption of the commodities. The consumers are workers who create and earn wealth, which gives them more money for consumption and that motivates the producers to produce more and more products. And then it goes in a continual cycle, supposedly a benevolent cycle, but the way she observed the economy, there was no very few marks of benevolence in the system, but rather a lot of clear signs and signals of damage and destruction. So she reflected on what is the requirements for creating a truly wholesome, truly sustainable, truly just economy. And as she went exploring this, she came up with the image of a donut. And so she calls it donut economics. And I put her, I found her donut diagram on the internet. Okay, her name is Kate Raworth, and she has published a book called Donut Economics. She's a senior visiting research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, also a senior associate at Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership. And she has, apart from the book, you don't have to, actually I, I have the book, and it's very, very detailed, even more detailed than I need, but she has a very good, concise, it's a TEDx video on YouTube called Why It's Time for Donut Economics. It's on TEDx Athens. I guess she gave it in Athens. Okay, so this is her diagram of donut economics. And the reason she calls it donut economics is because it's shaped like, her scheme is shaped like a donut, 
And she has two main, let's see, components in this diagram. She calls one of these, the outer rim, is the environmental ceiling. So this is a ceiling of certain parameters that we cannot overpass, cannot overshoot without inflicting severe damage on the planet. So that is the outer rim of the donut, and the inner rim is the social foundation. So these, well first, let's take the environmental ceiling. So we see the different factors or parameters that we can't overstep without inflicting damage on the planet. So these include, these are, even though they're put in separate compartments in her diagram, but they are intimately sort of interrelated, interdependent climate change, the use of fresh water, nitrogen and phosphorus cycles which come from artificial fertilizers which then get eventually seep into the soil or get swept out into the bodies of fresh water and into the ocean creating dead zones. Then ocean acidification which actually comes from carbon emissions since the oceans absorb the carbon And when they absorb the carbon, then the carbon interacts with other things in the ocean and it increases ocean acidity, destroying various life forms from coral reefs to different types of shellfish and and other fish. Chemical pollution expelled into the environment. Atmospheric, I can't read upside down so well, Atmospheric aerosol loading, overloading the atmosphere with aerosols. Ozone depletion. I think that there has been a halt to that over the last few decades. Then what I mentioned this morning, the loss of biodiversity, which is necessary for sustaining life. And climate change is one contributing factor to that. And then there's land use change, which means particularly the cutting down of forests in order to open up land, in order to grow food crops. And these are mainly, or at least one of the major uses of this when land is cleared in order to create fields for growing crops. One of the main uses of those crops is to feed cattle animals, particularly cattle, in order to grow the cattle for food. Okay, so these are the sort of the environmental limits that we have to be careful that a healthy economy has to be one that avoids overstepping these environmental, uh, passing beyond the environmental ceiling and stepping into these different ways in which we inflict damage on the environment. Then the inner rim is what is called the social foundation. And so these are the things, the requisites that people need to live a meaningful, fulfilling, dignified, sustainable life. So they include water, sufficient, healthy, nutritious food, clean water, clean drinking water, which is becoming scarcer around the world so they predict in the future even the terrible outcome of water wars over war 
wars over water, just like there are wars over oil. Okay, food, one needs food, one needs health care, gender equality, something which now there's a strong movement in this direction, but it's still a long way to go. And just a few days ago, the news came out about the disparities in pay between Michelle Williams, an actress, and I don't remember the, know the name of the actor, but he got something like a thousand times the pay that Michelle Williams got, even though she was the star of the film and he was playing a secondary role. Social equity in various ways, adequate energy, jobs, meaningful work, a voice, which remains a voice in the governance of the country, of the community in which one lives, the country in which one lives, resilience in facing different problems, but particularly perhaps environmental problems, or but also social and maybe psychological resilience, education, and inadequate, inadequate income. And I took some notes on, from, I think, either from her book or from the video. So the question that she was addressing was, what is it that enables human beings to thrive? And then she answers this with a world in which every person, every single individual can lead their life with dignity, with opportunity and community, within the means of our life-giving planet. So this is the ideal, the kind of what we need is when we take, we stop becoming addicted to these abstractions, the abstraction of the economy outside of the society, the society outside of the environment, financial holdings outside of the economy. But economy, the original meaning was household management. And what Kate Raworth says in the video that the original Greek philosopher who coined the expression oikonomi, I don't pronounce Greek very well, had in mind the idea of how to manage the household properly. But then he realized that the household can be extended, the meaning of household, to the whole city of Athens, the city-state. So it came to mean how to manage the affairs of the city-state properly. Then she says Adam Smith came up with the idea of the economy of how to manage the transactions that take place within a nation and between nations in trade. But now we need an economy that can apply to the whole world since we're all integrated into a single global community. So we need a household management which extends to the whole planet. But this has to be an economy not just aimed at growth or increase in profits and in gross domestic product, but an economy which enables every person to live with dignity, to thrive, to have a meaning, to have opportunities to thrive, to live in healthy, flourishing communities. 
And so she says that the donut points towards a future that can provide for every person's needs while safeguarding the living world on which we all depend. And so below the donut's social foundation lie the shortfalls in human well-being faced by those who lack life's essentials such as food, education, and housing. So she just mentions three examples here, but we see many factors in the diagram. Wow, now with the sun gone, at least I can see my cursor again. What a blessing. So, so many factors here. And the factor of food is one of the factors that has really struck my own mind very, very strongly. Because I read years ago that some like 800 million people are suffering from food insecurity. Um, Like 6 million people die every year from shortages of food, from hunger and hunger-related illnesses. And it would just take, according to my what I've read, in order to tackle the problem of global hunger, $40 billion, which might seem like a lot of money, but we consider that the United States is investing some $700 billion in its military defense budget, $700 billion just for defense alone, then related expenditures bring the military budget up to something like a trillion dollars. So if we suggest, maybe we'll go to our president together as a group and say, Mr. President, just $40 billion, it's such a tiny fraction of the military budget. Let's use it to fight global hunger. We could do it. I mean, if we were to use that amount and then to provide education and health care for everybody, I mean, considering the amount of monetary wealth that the world is generating, it would just be a fraction of what these nations are investing, using to create more and more powerful, destructive weapons of mass destruction. So it really takes a turn from insanity to a kind of basic sanity and a little bit of compassion and loving kindness to see how we could use our wealth, our resources, in the way that will be truly beneficial to all humanity. Okay, so this is the social foundation. That is the ceiling, the floor, and we can't let people fall beneath that floor. And then the ceiling, beyond the ceiling, lies an overshoot of pressure on Earth's life-giving systems, such as through climate change, ocean ocean acidification and chemical pollution. And so then she says, between these two sets of boundaries lies a sweet spot that is both an ecologically safe place and a socially just space for humanity. And so the task for the 21st century is to bring all of humanity into that safe place This is the safe place. This is the outer boundary of the donut, the inner boundary, and this is the substance of the donut itself. So this is a safe and just space. It's an inclusive, sort of the aim is inclusive and sustainable economic development. 
And so this, I would say, this model that she lays out is in a way a model for tackling simultaneously the problem of climate change and other types of environmental despoliation and the problem of social and economic disparities and ensuring that every person will receive the social support, economic support that they need to lead healthy, meaningful, and dignified lives. Okay, that will be sort of my presentation on donut economics. And I also recommend that if you want to get like a fuller account of this, that you can view Kate Rayworth's, Raworth's video. And on her own website, she has her own website called Donut Economics. She has a series that's about five or six maybe it's nine, I think it's nine, very short one or two minute videos. Each one covers a different, sort of the essence of a different chapter in her book. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.